Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Well, hello, and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm talking to Professor David Lowe, who holds a chair in contemporary history at Deakin University, and he's a historian of modern international relations and Australia in world affairs. Welcome to Afternoon Light, David. Thanks very much, Georgina. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here, David, and in person, which is always my preferred option. And today we're talking about the Colombo Plan, which was Menzies era initiative, but not just Menzies and not just Australia, which we will talk about more, but, but something that here at a university campus obviously has particular resonance. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about this very important piece of policy and foreign policy and, and statecraft. But let's start at the beginning. What was the Colombo plan? All the way back in 1950, wasn't it? Yeah, January 1950. January yeah. 1950 was the conference in held in Colombo in Salon, it was as it was then known, which kicked things off. And it took about a year and a half for the plan to officially start. So the middle of 1951 is the official start date. But what it was was really a um, less of a, a plan with a capital P than a, a an umbrella under which. There were a series of bilateral arrangements between donor governments and recipient governments. So, you know, the Australians would, for example, get together with the Selenese government around a particular project need, a development need, whether it be dam building, road making or student um, sponsoring, and other governments would do similarly. It started out as a Commonwealth project. It was that meeting in 1950, January 1950, was purely Commonwealth countries, but very quickly everyone agreed that it should be expanded. So... From a South Asian start, it quickly became South and Southeast Asia. So the title was the Colombo Plan for Cooperative Development in South and Southeast Asia. And by the time we get to the mid-1950s, most of the Southeast Asian nations had joined. And by the time you get to 1960, there's very few countries in the region that hadn't joined. So from little things, big things did grow. And while the Commonwealth remained an important source of both inspiration and I think the Commonwealth set the tone for how the meetings were held and how lots happened within the Colombo Plan. It also very quickly expanded. The United States joined in 1951, Indonesia soon after as well. So very important other members joined really quickly after that initial meeting. Was it one of the first big acts of the Commonwealth? Yeah, in post-war terms, the Commonwealth uh, was, from London's point of view too, quite keen to extend beyond just prime ministerial meetings. So so they they wanted to have meetings at a finance minister's level and a foreign minister's level. Now, this meeting, this one in January 1950, was a meeting of Commonwealth foreign ministers, and they wondered whether there'd be future ones. In fact, it was really the only one that, that worked like that. But it was part of that plan by the Commonwealth to spread the load so that countries in different parts of the world would take more leadership, including Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and also diversify the leadership away from just a prime ministerial focus. Mm. And you'd have to say it was reasonably successful because this thing called the Colombo Plan was born, but it didn't really kick on in the sense that foreign ministers didn't meet quite like that ever again. 
Oh, I see. And tell me, what was the role of Britain then in this in this meeting as a as a sort of putative leader of the Commonwealth? And of course, its presence back then was, was yeah. truly, truly significant. Indeed, and Britain had a complicated series of aims when it went to Colombo Plan in nineteen fifty, and most of them, you have to say, weren't achieved. All right. Um, it wanted to ensure leadership um, within the region, South and Southeast Asia, in combating communism. Mm which was, you know, on the rise in the late 1940s in the lead-up to the meeting. It also, very importantly, it wanted to use the Colombo Plan as a means by which it would regulate the repayments of its huge wartime debts to particularly India and the new Pakistan. So it wanted to use the Colombo Plan as a means by which they could regulate the drawing down of sterling balances that were owed to India rather than have a run on, on sterling, which they were terribly fearful of. And their hope was that they could come up with a program that was a bit like the Marshall Plan in Europe. They could invite the Americans in. American dollars would somehow offset that kind of repayment need to these new members of the Commonwealth, who quite rightly, the Indians, you know, having become independent, were owed the biggest sums of money for their wartime efforts, were insistent on, you know, getting their money pretty quickly. British were quite keen for the Americans to step into that formula, into into that interim role, so that their funding could offset these mm. papers. Now, it didn't happen. Oh, it didn't the, happen. the Americans no. wouldn't play ball. But other things did happen. So the Americans did get involved in South and Southeast Asia, especially through once the Korean War broke out in the middle of 1950, and they had their own ideas about how to provide finance in ways that would address the dangers of communism, etc., etc. So... British historians who've looked at the Colombo Plan have this, you know, huge kind of flurry of documents to work on, one of the things I'm writing about at the moment, and they get to 1950 and everything falls flat because all of the huge British plans weren't realised. And that, for me, is a bit of a historiographical problem. The British, whose historians have dominated some of this story, think that not much happens thereafter. It's just, you know, didn't work out kind of thing. And so they move on to talking about Malaya or they talk about Suez or something else. In fact, the Colombo Plan actually got off the ground in really interesting ways. Mm. It's just that Britain's leadership of it and control of it really wasn't a big factor. Right, yeah. So what happened to Britain repaying debts to India and Pakistan then? Did they call call on their debts very quickly as they had feared? They managed to still um, moderate the way, the the timeliness of their repayments. So they, they had partial success, but it couldn't be bundled up with Colombo Plan. Britain claimed that it was making all these contributions of foreign aid to India and they called it foreign aid, whereas really it was just repayment of these debts. Yeah, yeah. So they managed that story for a while. And, and that was accepted in yeah, India that, for well, a while. Well, the Indians you know, pointed out that it wasn't really foreign aid no. rather than repayments of debts. But the British narrative around the Colombo Plan was able to build that into its story. But by the time we get to the late 1950s, it's... It, it's been overtaken. They've Most of the debts have been partially repaid at least and no one's buying that story anymore. Really. Mm, mm. So the Menzies government under the Liberal Party banner is elected in December 1949, the 10th of December, and this Commonwealth meeting in Colombo was in January 1950. So, I mean, how developed were... Menzies and his external affairs ministers' views on what should be achieved at this meeting and 
and what should be achieved more broadly amongst Commonwealth countries and, and then in Asia. I mean, that's a, that's a month. <laughs> that's a month. But there was a lot of lead-up work yeah. done in yeah. the departments. It was a young Department of External Affairs, but it still had some pretty good people. Yes. One of the most important sources of continuity was John Burton, who was the Secretary. Controversial figure, but he actually worked very well with Percy Spender, mm. the incoming Minister for External Affairs, yeah. partly because he didn't like the kind of traditional ties that the Department of Defence had with Britain and he wanted to push attention far more towards Australia's near neighbourhood, towards Southeast Asia. And Spender was of the same mind. So those two, Burton and also Arthur Tang, you know, had some very well-developed briefs. Spender took them. He he certainly gave them a twist in a way that was a little bit more um, hard-edged anti-communist. But um, there was a fair bit of continuity between the views of the briefs leading up to in 1949 leading up to the general election in Australia, developed in external affairs, and what Percy Spender wanted to achieve. And you'd have to say Menzies gave Spender his head too. You know, yeah. he, he gave him quite a sense of licence to, you know, see what could happen. Menzies was very focused on um, a security treaty with the United States yes. that became ANZUS, of course, as it well celebrated. And Spender knew that and he wanted the same thing. So one of Spender's objectives in the Colombo plan was to establish a sense of Australian leadership in the region through some aid initiatives and draw the United States in Mm. so that he could square that circle, he could get American involvement in the security of this region. And although it wasn't all his doing, I I mentioned the Korean War, it was probably more external factors that brought this about, he could claim some credit in agitating in that direction, which again went back to that overarching objective he shared with Menzies, even if the two men had slightly different views of the region, really. Yes. I mean, there's there's some um, notes here saying that, that Spender came up with the Colombo plan, or at least the sort of scholarship element of this Colombo plan, on the plane, on the way to, um, to Colombo. <laughs> they tested it out. They landed in Jakarta on the way to Colombo. Okay. And they tested out some ideas. Most of the briefs in... Department of External Affairs were focused on Indonesia and they needed an example. They said, well, look, Indonesia is going to be an important near neighbour for us. We're worried about its instability in the wake of decolonisation and the new new government. So they focused on Indonesia and one of the things they came up with, in fact, there's sort of a list of, of a very famous documents that says, what does Indonesia need? And they came up with this long list of kind of, you know, wire fencing, fertiliser, farming equipment, and one other official in the same meeting said, hang on, we need all that stuff too. So (laughs) so they went back to the drawing board and said, um, what else do they need? And and one of the things identified was training, um, training for technical assistance kind of purposes and training for development, whether it be engineering, science, medicine. So Indonesia as a test case, case study worked quite well and Spender tested those ideas out with Sukarno when they when he dropped in on the way to Colombo. So yes, there's a bit of drafting done on the plane, but as I say, there's a fair bit of ideas in play before that as well. Yeah. So no, but that's but that's interesting. And how did Sukarno respond? I mean, presumably well, yep. given it then became yep. Yep. the po- policy. Yeah, positively, tentatively, but positively. Yeah, it would probably be the the short answer. I mean, Sukarno was someone who was always suspicious of Western intentions at this time, but he was also mindful of Indonesia's development needs. Yeah. So you just spoke a bit earlier about Colombo Plan being much more than 
giving scholarships to Asian students to come and study in Australia. Can you just unpack the the different um, arms of it and and I guess how important in the end was this education program in the whole context? Sure. Um, so in dollar terms, the bigger sums were always on those huge development projects such as dam building, irrigation, hydroelectricity, and for the bulk of the 1950s, most of that money went to the old members of the Commonwealth, Ceylon, mm. India in particular, and Pakistan from Australia. They were always the much bigger sums. They often consisted of um, things like wheat surpluses, which were granted to the governments of those South Asian countries and they could sell them in return for funds that went towards these projects, the uh, counterpart funding it was called. Yeah. So it helped the agricultural sector in Australia as well. That was much bigger sums. But by the the mid-1950s, the Australians had realised, and Spender really pushed this from the very outset, and his successor, Casey, was of the same mind that really it was difficult to get a lot of purchase around oh, just how well things were going. These things that I mentioned, such as dam building, roads, irrigation, took ages to build, uh, beset by delays. Understandably, many of these countries were still recovering from war, they had their own challenges in just how fast they could gear up. So there was such slow progress and quite a few problems with many of these that Casey in particular realised that the far better value in terms of telling a good story was around training students. And yeah. so, and it's interesting too, David, the impact, that soft power impact of, you know, it might cost you 100, 100, well back then say, you know, 20, 30, 40 million to build a bridge. But if you educate a few students, they have relatives, they go back to their country, they talk, they, you know, that, that magnifies. Whereas a bridge, I mean, people don't necessarily, unless it's sort of emblazoned with Australian flags, are they not really thinking, oh, it's Australians built the bridge. Thank you very much, Australia, every day. <laughs> Absolutely right. So Spender <laughs> wanted this technical assistance side of the scheme. Mm which consisted of sponsoring students and sending technical experts. He wanted that from the outset mm. and he, he he actually, you know, kicked and screamed a bit in, in, in moving others along with him in 1951, but they went with it. And then Casey, whose background in public relations was pretty strong, really seized on this. He, mm. So he spent a lot of time encouraging um, other elements in Australia, including the Australian News and Information Bureau based in Canberra. They had their own Colombo Plan desk, they had um, people, photographers, who were always ready to rush out and take photos of smiling students, you know, visiting Australian farms or whatever. And so the you talked about soft power. This, as an early exercise in Australian soft power, was pretty successful. But the amount of money it cost was pretty modest compared to all the bridges and the, Compa- the dams. Compared and to the rest, it was. Infrastructure projects. But, yeah. but you're absolutely right in terms of telling stories and conveying that human that transformational story you can tell around a life. It's always more captivating, isn't it, to be able to tell of someone who um, had an experience, returned home and was able to bring this knowledge to an endeavour, a nation-building endeavour with good effect. So this became... uh, The Australians were almost resented by the other countries for how good they were at doing it. You know, the British really bristled because they actually trained more students than the Australians, not by a lot. The Australians were pretty good. But the British, you find Colombo Plan meetings, the British are saying these bloody Australians are always kind of saying they train everyone when they do things like fly a um, 
a crop dusting plane into a meeting and leave it there with a grand fanfare about, you know, you can have it now. Whereas in cost terms, it wasn't quite as um, impressive as what the British were doing. So this public relations success was evidenced by some of the kind of admiring stroke resentment comments that you heard from others. So so the students from South Asia and Southeast Asia who were going to study, they, they went to Australia, they also went to the Britain... Canada, New Canada, Zealand. New Zealand. India was also a host, very, very determined to be a host of students from the outset, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, not with the same numbers involved, but they were determined to be seen as a donor as well as a recipient country from the outset, and that's something that probably hasn't been sufficiently appreciated. That was part of their ideas for the Colombo Plan. So what were the numbers of students then that, that went through and what percentage did end up in Australia? Because as you say, we... From Australia, we think of Colombo Plan as something we did. Mm. I think a lot of Australians would conceptualise it as an Australian idea run by Australia, only by Australia, for Southeast Asian, South Asian students during the, the, what, 50s, 60s. I think it went to 85 or so, did it? Well, it still exists today. Um, The the strange thing about the Colombo Plan is it still does exist, but it's a a very poor kind of shadow of its former self. It's mostly specific training programs around policing or drug advisory or something. Um, I shouldn't diminish those, but it's nothing like the grand scheme it once was. Mm. So there are two parts to your answer. One is that we need to remember that even by the late 1950s, which I would say late 50s, early 60s is the height of the Colombo Plan in terms of how people regarded it, the publicity around it, even at that stage, if we take Australia as as our focus, there are around five times the number of privately funded Asian students in Australia as there are Colombo Plan students. Right? Ah, that's interesting. So that's one part of the answer. Yeah. We probably had about, say, by the early 60s, it might be around 2,500 um, Colombo Plan students. But the number of privately funded students dwarfs that. And that's the same for most other host countries. Britain welcomed its 2,000th student in 1958, so it was just a, a little bit in front of Australia, not much. In grand terms, therefore, the the numbers aren't huge. We can probably get a bit carried away um, by the numbers. Total number of students might be um, 40,000 once you get to the early 1980s figure. It's not a huge number compared to the number of private students. But going back to that conversation we had around publicity, you'd probably be forgiven if you were an Australian who saw an Asian student on the street and quickly said that must be a Colombo Plan student, such was the effectiveness of the publicity around yeah. it. Did the Colombo Plan students give, I guess, confidence to, to parents in Southeast Asia, South Asia to then privately fund their own children to go? I mean, there must have been a bit of a nice circularity there where, yes. you know, success breeds success. <laughs> I, I think so. I think... Um, that kind of generational um, effect, knock-on effect of hosting students is probably pretty significant, and we can see that. And There are well-documented case studies of that happening. You'd have to say that those first cohorts were probably um, quite elite too. They were probably, you could make the case if you wanted to critique it that there was a fair bit of patronage involved. There were many, many people were close to members of governments in, in Asian countries. Maybe that wasn't a bad thing. You know, you can go either way in terms of how you see that because if you want students to have influence upon return, you can make a case for that. It was overwhelmingly male, especially in the early days too. So there is a particular kind of profile that was 
became a bit more diversified as we get into the late 60s and 70s. But those early cohorts were reasonably selected. We, we tended to, of course, leave the countries themselves to select their students according to their needs. And yes, I think you probably can see in many instances second generational knock-on effects too. A friend of mine was a diplomat in Kuala Lumpur a few years ago and I went and visited him and he said uh, at that point in time, so that's sort of 10, 15 years ago, I think this is right, every single member of the Malaysian cabinet had studied in Australia. Malaysia, indeed. (laughs) Which is amazing. I don't think they were all Colombo plan scholars, but every single one had studied in Australia. And, of of course, for the Australian High Commission in Malaysia – that was just so convenient because the, everyone they engaged with at that scene, you know, ministerial level had an Australian connection. Uh, I mean, you hoped that they had a positive experience. I think by and large they had. But there was a level of familiarity because of that educational uh, background that other countries just wouldn't have had. Yes, and, and I think Malaysia has one of the strongest um, Colombo Plan alumni groups too. So even today you can find some very active alumni groups. Malaysia stands out. You're right about the – and there's certain geographical pathways too to certain cities. A lot of Malaysians came to Adelaide. There's a strong connection between Kuala Lumpur and Adelaide. So interesting patterns developed. Again, because of that word of mouth and, and that kind of, you know, cohort, sometimes certain institutions, whether they be universities in Asia and universities in Australia, develop particular bonds. Um Indonesia's um, LIPI, which is a social sciences research institute, they have they talked about the the kind of LIPI mafia who, who studied in Australia, and you know you, you could always go down a corridor and find someone who had an Australian connection in that research institute. These are good examples of what we would call soft power or public diplomacy. So you'd have to say that the legacy is sometimes a bit slippery, sometimes a bit elusive, and we always tend to forget that those who didn't have a good time in Australia probably disappear. You know, you, mm. you, don't, you don't tend to find them as readily. They won't come forward probably quite as readily for an interview or they won't join an alumni group. No. We know that there were some who didn't have a good time and there were probably some who, especially in the early days, in, encountered signs of narrow-mindedness or racism in those early times as well. But on the whole, the management of the story and the management of alumni groups means that yeah, cultivation of goodwill has been pretty successful. So in terms of bang for buck, uh, this was a pretty – and when we think about it in, in contemporary terms too, the Australian government puts a lot of money into public diplomacy and uh, you know, ebbs and flows, of course, over the years. But But these types of programs well executed can actually be incredibly um, – you know, incredibly good investment – Compared to the bridges, yeah, well, <laughs> we, we, this yeah. probably was a very. In, was it about a hundred and fifty million in the end that Australia spent on? Yeah, look, like I, that? I, I don't have the precise figure, and I should, probably should correct my earlier figure around forty. It was twenty thousand students in, in, so it wasn't a big number of students who came to Australia. But bang for buck, it's hard to argue with that proposition, Georgina. I think it, it is. It's it's, and I think we probably need to remember that this could have faded away there was potential for the legacy of the Colombo Plan not to have such a kind of active celebration. Mm. But we need to remember that the internationalisation of Australian higher education from the late 80s onwards meant that so many universities suddenly became invested 
in joining the dots of those earlier stories that universities have often led the way in ensuring that we remember the Colombo Plan well because it's in their interests. Mm. They, they, you know, the, the nature of the economic funding model for modern Australian universities has, as we all know, relied pretty heavily in recent times on lots of international students. You don't remember something unless there's a current sense of energy around why you should remember it. And I just make the point that Australian universities and recent Australian governments have had plenty of incentive and, and, you know, Julie Bishop's new Colombo plan was a canny piece of marketing, really, in, yeah. in that sense. Um, and I think, you know, has done the job really well. The bridges and the dams and so on were important and you can find um, locomotives still kicking around, um, which has a badge of, you know, Australian Colombo plan. Most of them have, have gone by now. Canadians were equally as good at doing things like that. But the other point I'd make is that the experience of getting together each year, different country, a different member hosted the Colombo Plan meeting on an annual basis through the 50s and 60s. The experience of sitting down, these meetings went for about four weeks if you included all the preliminaries, oh was God. hugely God. important in terms of Australians getting to know others in the region. Yes. So the, the undertold story of the diplomacy, which was a safe space, all the communiques and end of, end of story meetings were banal, they, they were, that was all consensus driven, there was to be no controversy. This was actually a really important part of Australians and mid-tier bureaucrats getting to know each other with their likely counterparts throughout the region. Um, the New Zealanders, just to give you an example, in 1956 hosted the Colombo Plan meeting. This was the first international conference of this nature that ever held. Yeah. It was a wow. huge deal for Wellington. And you read the publicity of the Times, it was such a big deal. We tend to forget just how important hosting these meetings, getting to know each other was. So that's the other element of the Colombo Plan that I think is underappreciated. Oh, I think I think you're right because you th- you think of the you know, real kind of spaghetti soup of multilateral meetings that Australian diplomatic officials have to attend these days. Um, there's, you know, there's something like. 60 different bodies that Australia is a member of that they have to attend annual meetings of. And, you know, ASEAN Associated Meetings, um, the APEC Associated Meetings, it, I mean, they, there are, it's not just the, the leaders meeting, there are multiple meetings that support going into the, the leaders level meeting. But, I mean, we're familiar with them now, but in Australia and New Zealand in the 1950s, there wasn't that multilateral architecture in place. But there, as you say, there wasn't that familiarity of engaging with Asian neighbours as a, as a counterpart. You know, we had been obviously hmm. focused on Britain, focused on battles in Europe, in the Middle East, actually engaging with our neighbours on development issues, educational issues, economic uh, integration issues. This is this is incredibly important work that's being done in the 1950s and 60s, and I think debunks a myth that Australia just discovered Asia in the 1970s, or Paul Keating and Bob Hawke discovered Asia with APEC. Uh, yeah. This this all came from a, a hugely strong foundation that was being built up in the 50s. Yeah, yeah, and and you know just um, the availability of air travel. Um, as I said, these meetings rotated; they had to be in a donor country one year, then in a recipient country the next year. So you're, mm-hmm. you're hosting uh, the diversity of places you're seeing is extraordinary. And the meetings, as I said, they're quite long. 
They took the form of a preliminary group of planners, in other words, mid-tier external affairs and treasury officials getting together and looking at, just examining the progress of how people, they had six-year plans basically they were working to. They examined those plans and technical assistance progress. Then would come the ministers who'd fly in for a week and then there'd be the like a big conference, the the post meeting excursions, and often those excursions were important for getting to know people mm. well so, mm. as well. So, this side of things I think has probably been a bit underestimated. Then to stick with my New Zealand example, I'm pretty convinced from what I've seen that the New Zealanders actually had to open. They felt they had to open their first post in Jakarta simply because of all the Colombo plan demands made wow. of them. So, in other words, it was the Colombo plan that forced them to open an overseas post because they just needed to, you know, have somewhere to monitor all their Colombo plan activities. So during the Menzies era, 49 to 66, the Australian diplomatic network expanded greatly, lots of reasons for that. But presumably, similarly, this sort of Colombo plan activity would have necessitated diplomats on the ground supporting the reporting and the network building that the Colombo plan required. Yep, so Casey was a great promoter of um, an expanded influence in the region and so some of these people were dragooned into attending lots of Colombo plan activities. There was also a UN body called ECAFE, the Economic Commission on Asia in the Far East, that ran sort of parallel and overlapped with some of the Colombo plan aims. good thing about the Colombo plan was, though, that in terms of Cold War politics, it could escape the, the kind of grandiose beating each other up that happened in UN forums because the Soviets and the Americans would stand up and clobber each other at every cafe meeting and so on. Because the Soviets weren't part of the Colombo plan, that didn't happen. It's not to say that Cold War considerations weren't there. They were in terms of some of the decisions around aid and where it should go. But diplomatically it escaped some of the nastier posturings of Cold War as well. So you got to know people in different ways around their development needs and their aspirations for the diplomatic standing of their country. The Indians liked to think that the Colombo plan, I think with good reason, was a sort of a diplomatic grooming laboratory for newer countries in the region. They, they, they liked to think that it was a means by which Indonesians and others could strut their stuff diplomatically in a safe way. Mm. And, and that wasn't meant condescendingly. I think it was just meant as a kind of um, cultivation of um, gathering your diplomatic standing. And I think, you know, there's something to that. Um, the Japanese too, very importantly for us, they found it difficult to work their way back into diplomatic and political economic discussions in Southeast Asia for reasons that yes. are probably pretty easily understood. Yes. And their membership of the Colombo Plan from 1954 onwards was very important to them. It just allowed them to ease themselves back into conversations and to rebuild connections economically and politically with countries as they were finishing off reparations agreements and so on. So whilst there's no neat straight lines, I would say that the Colombo Plan is important in the background of things like the um, Asian Development Bank that the Mm. Japanese set up and lead in the mid-1960s, ASEAN that you mentioned before, which is consensus-driven discussion. These, the Colombo plan sits in the background of some of these developments, I think, as a really important kind of first stage. Mm, mm. And David, you talked about the Cold War considerations. So part of the ambition was through Colombo plan was to you know, make sure that these countries were on the good side and not the side of global communism. They didn't fall, fall prey to um, the 
the communist countries, lures of you know economic riches and the like that 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 was coming from from the West. Did it work? Did it halt the spread of communism throughout these countries? It's a really hard question to answer, Georgina. I mean, I think um, you'd have to say that we probably we need to remind ourselves of how much agency some of the the recipient countries themselves insisted on. Mm. So they were quite choosy in the forms of aid. Sukarno, Indonesia, was always – they hosted this meet, these long meetings that I talked about. They hosted the 1959 meeting and in welcoming all the delegates, he made a point of saying there is a Western conception of what it is to give foreign aid. That's not our conception. And mm. even though most of the governments um, were embarked on what I call development internationalism, and that is they needed to – join their state-making efforts with a sort of a, a compact with often former colonial governments and the West, they could moderate, they could mediate the Cold War messaging often. Yeah. Sukarno was reasonably good at it. They took the money still and said no to certain. The Burmese, to give you another example, re- were really uncertain because, you know, Burma wasn't a member of the Commonwealth. They opted out quite quickly after World War II and they were really suspicious of the Colombo plan for a while but then they found it less odious than just accepting they needed development assistance and they found it a less odious form of foreign aid acceptance than if they just took US money right. because it was so explicitly tied to the Cold War in terms of its rhetoric, in terms of its, its explicit aims. What was attractive about the Colombo Plan was that everyone knew there was Cold War kind of considerations in the background from donor governments and some of the Australian decision-making around radios for Vietnam and so on you know, bore that out. But for the most part, it was in the background. Mm. And so the Burmese decided to join the Colombo Plan mostly for that reason. Their government could address the concerns of some of the more leftist elements in the, in opposition by saying that this is much better than, say, accepting USAID, which is tied to this kind of anti-communist, heavy-handed rhetoric. Colombo Plan had that muted. If it, So the Cold War, I would say, was indispensable but insufficient as an explanation for how things un- unfolded. Now, it's a long-winded answer by me, and you'll see I'm being a bit tentative in saying whether it worked, but you'd have to say that on balance, I think the Colombo Plan served as a good mediating influence that was acceptable to both donor governments and recipient governments, in which the Cold War could appear as a background important influence, but not um, over-determine, over-colour the flavour of the Colombo Plan? Well, I guess on reflection, you you look at the Colombo Plan as supporting consistent lines of communication between the, the donor countries and the recipient countries that, you know, even if the messaging wasn't overtly anti-communist, veiled in Cold War rhetoric, it was still, you know, Australians talking to Indonesians, Mal- Malaysians, Bur- you know, Burmese on a regular basis about about the development of their country. And that, you know, those sort of regular communications would, I think, give an opportunity to give a certain level of messaging on, you know, the importance of, you know, of democracy and good government and accountability to the people that that you know the West would have would have wanted in the minds of decision makers in the recipient countries. Yeah, I think that's an important point. There, there are two elements that I would stress, which complement what you've said. One is the Colombo Plan fostered 
always fostered a sense of sort of experimental regionalism. Mm. Now, these governments were pretty different, most of them, and, and there was nothing like that kind of Marshall Plan example of an aid program sitting heavily, heavy-handedly over no. things. So most yeah. of these things were bilateral, as I mentioned. But there were always conversations around what might be possible in a regional sense. And there was a regional training centre eventually set up in Singapore that, you know, meant that people could come from all around under particular regional technical training needs around engineering and so on. There were other conversations around the extent to which people could share their data regionally, and that, that were, they were mostly successful. So that's one. And the other is internationalism. The Colombo Plan also fostered a sense of internationalism more broadly. Now, people were watching the U- new United Nations unfold and UNESCO and its you know and other auxiliary bodies, and they were interested in how the changing Commonwealth, which had sponsored this thing called the Colombo Plan, could help foster a cautious sense of internationalism among members as well. So I would add that regionalism and internationalism were important ingredients, not played out heavy-handedly, but when people met for their annual meetings, there, this was always in the air. People were always talking about what might be possible. Going back to my point about the Colombo Plan being a good kind of testing ground for things that came later. And do you think it helped that the US wasn't the overarching presence too? It um, did. Because there, you know, that was that issue was that sort of global hegemon, Cold War warrior was out of the room, and Australia perhaps was a softer face. Very much. Yeah. Um, the Americans, it was fortunate that the Americans were involved in the Colombo Plan and Seattle hosted a meeting in the 1950s as well. And that was a big deal and people really welcomed American involvement. But the Americans had this kind of interesting relationship with the Colombo Plan that was sort of hands-offish. Mm. They realised that their presence could be just domineering mm. and they also wanted the freedom in the wake of things going wrong in Korea and then the French leaving Vietnam, they wanted the freedom to not become too beholden to other bodies. So it suited them to, yeah, they'd come along and they'd allow their aid to be counted under Colombo Plan, but it was pretty much independent as well. And, and that was probably a good thing for the dynamic of, of the, the whole group. And I guess enabled Australia to work closely with the non-aligned movement countries in a way that at, in, at the UN would have been... It did. Unimaginable. That's right. And it's another reason, just on that US note, it's another reason why the Colombo Plan I think is underappreciated because the State Department just marginalises it. So historians come along and plough through. The best series of documents that are held in the English-speaking worlds are in London and Washington. The British just say, oh, it didn't matter much after 1950. The Americans um, say, well, Colombo Plan, yeah, we'll do it lip service, but we don't really care that much because we're going to do our things our way anyway. And therefore historians have followed that lead, I think, mm. mistakenly. Yeah. But you're right, it created the space for other countries to learn, to be um, tentatively kind of um, taking steps diplomatically, the Australians to host things, the Canadians, you know, to give you another example from outside Australia, the Canadians really didn't know what they were going to do in the Colombo Plan in early days. They thought it was just another Commonwealth enterprise. They were very keen on supporting the Commonwealth, but they had to be kind of dragged into this posture of, well, we are sort of invested now, somehow connected with the affairs of South and Southeast Asia. We better sort of develop a more robust set of thoughts around what it is to give foreign aid. So it led them in constructive ways mm. to think more seriously about the region and to learn about it and to turn up to meetings and so on. Uh, 
At which, of course, is to Australia's benefit too. Hmm. You have uh, more like-minded countries doing with the same intent and, and that we're a middle power too, not, not sort of the overbearing United States and that we could do these things separately from the United States. Um, I wanted to shift the conversation just in our, our final moments to the experience of, of a Colombo Plan student in Australia, which is important and, as we were saying before, important for the soft power element. And not just their experiences but also the experiences of Australians of these students. So what was that impact in Australia? So we suddenly see these students entering, and obviously some are Colombo Plan, some are private students, entering into Australian university campuses. It just seems completely like a non-event these days. It's par for the course. But back then it would have been a curiosity. Was It, it, it was, and we're fortunate to have um, some pretty good accounts too, um in the form of interviews with former students, um, in the form of, uh, I mentioned before, universities are quite invested in telling stories from earlier days, allowing for lots of variation. On the whole, you'd have to say it was a good example of what I've termed vernacular internationalism because the students, um, remember, they couldn't fly home. It was too expensive for most of them and it was too impractical to fly home for holidays. So in addition to getting to know Australians on campuses, they, courtesy of Rotary, Apex, Christian student groups, university groups, they had experiences in Australia more broadly. So they would you know, be taken to farms, they'd be taken to country towns. And you'd have to say that it educated Australians about Asia yeah. at, at a more broad populist level. And I think from the point of view of the students and the, from the point of view of Australians, this was one of the success stories that's well told. Rotary, Apex, those types of voluntary organisations, were they being incentivised by the government to do these outreach activities with the students? Partly, partly. Yeah. They did it um, largely off their own bat, but Casey certainly encouraged them. In, I think it was Queensland, the was it the education minister there, and I have this in my, my notes, in 1953, George DeVries, Queensland's Minister for Education, declared Brisbane the launching place for a new Australia-wide movement called Meet Thy Neighbour, which was basically getting residents of Brisbane on – well, I think he was trying to get residents across Australia to open their homes up to international students. And Richard Casey, who was External Affairs Minister, he endorsed this and he did say that the one weakness of the Colombo Plan had been that there were a lack of opportunities for international students to know the average Australian working man in his own home. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so that scheme um, had partial success in Queensland and we need to note that this is also the era in which the first international student houses were being conceived and built, including one here at University of Melbourne, Absolutely. with Colombo Plan money, actually, that one. And sometimes Rotary would um, help the funding drive for in international houses elsewhere, such as in Brisbane and Sydney. So the connection between universities and these community organisations is a feature. Apex, which is um, sadly not quite the organisation it once was, they were very proud of leading the way in the kind of summer holiday experience and um, hosting students with families around Australia. So this, the voluntarism aspect of Australia's involvement in the Colombo Plan is a good news story. It had its imperfections, of course, as well, and some quite comical, you can read country newspapers, which are a great source for this because, you know, they were always attentive to the exotic kind of dimension of Asian students coming to visit small country towns in the 50s. And um, 
you can read about how students were entertained over dinner, then invited to go and shoot kangaroos and, and see the golf course and the local telephone exchange. So it, there are some interesting <laughs> mixtures of activities the students were invited to um, partake yeah. in. Yeah. But, you know, underpinning it all is a much more serious getting to know you dimension, which was quite important, I think. Now, some historians have argued tentatively, but I think with some justification that in terms of just the chipping away of the white Australia policy and the changes to our immigration, you probably need to factor in some of the consequences of the Colombo plan. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting. So in 1958, the Menzies government really starts to dismantle white Australia policy. But I understand in 1957 it actually became possible for long-term Asian residents of Australia to get permanent residency. They had to wait 15 years to get citizenship, whereas non-Asians only had to wait five. But this was at least some some recognition that these, these say, an Asian student who then remained in Australia, that they had a path to, to stay on in Australia. Yeah, you know, the... The standard for Colombo Plan students was that they had to return home, of course, upon completion of their studies. Mm. Some of the interesting um, case studies, though, around which we have really good data of student experiences was those who managed to marry um, in Australia mm. and, and stayed on that way. So there's some great stories of Indonesian students and other students who were able to settle in Australia courtesy of marriage. Um, but you're right, There is um, by the time we get to the late 1950s, there's also this, this dimension of just slow but um, progressive change in the regulations around Asians um, in Australia. I I wanted to finish off by um, talking about International House. So as you said, there's one here at Melbourne University and, in fact, Menzies opened it, I believe, and we have photos here in the university archives of Menzies at the opening of International House and, you know, quite sweet photos. He's, he's, a, he's an older man and he's very they look very young Asian students surrounding him, you know, completely overwhelmed with excitement and I think Menzies is sort of helping them with the food, dishing out the lunch or something. It's quite sweet. But uh, so Ian Clooney's Ross, was, who was chairman of the CSIRO, he became president of the committee responsible for the fundraising for International House. I mean, you had some heavy heaters invested yep. in these in these institutions to support international students. So this was a, this was sort of a, a, a cross Australia effort to to host international students and make them feel welcome and has in, enduring impacts, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean those those um, well celebrated moments such as the opening of international houses um, well, you uh, get a prime minister. You get a prime I mean, minister. You can't even imagine that. Well, as I said, there was a, there was a yeah. there was a whole desk um, devoted to the Colombo Plan in yeah. the Australian News and Information Bureau. Mm. So they were very conscious of the publicity, and they did it very well. And they, as you say, with Ian Clooney's Ross, they cultivated some pretty heavy hitters in in sponsoring the scheme. So, getting back to that comment connection between the Colombo Plan and soft power, you have to say a lot of successes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to your book that you're writing on the on the the bigger picture of the Colombo plan and I think there'll be lots of really interesting insights uncovered that we all will benefit from and of course we've we've had the next iteration with the new Colombo plan which you know sorry I'm not ending the podcast now am I I, I was interested reading reading the notes for today that that in the mid 50s there were efforts to get um Australians to go to Asian institutions. It wasn't – so this sort of idea that it was just 
incoming students into Australia. We were doing the sending out Australians. It was it there was, were a few. Yeah, um, so, there's there's a lot of fanfare of an Australian student going to an Indian university. Um, I can't remember whether it was fifty three or four, but in the mid fifties, we do see some Australian students travelling the other way. Now, of course, you know that's that's an exception. Most of the um, Asian students were coming to donor countries. Mm. But I mentioned India's, in particular, determination to be seen as both donor and recipient. I'm quite proud of that. And um, I also mentioned a regional training centre set up in Singapore in the early 70s, and that hosted people, including Australians. Mm. There's another dimension to this, and that is the the training that Australian experts did as part of the technical assistance program on, you know, farming techniques or dam building. So experts sent and spending time in overseas parts of the world, in, in, in Asia, of course. We've got patchy stories on their experiences. Some struggled to adjust. Um, they weren't quite ready for what they faced. And some forged lasting ties too. So yeah. mm. the expert, the, tra- the training experts who, who who visited Asia during this period is another little bit harder to un- unpack and uncover mm. story, but it's an important one as well. Yeah. Well, lot, lots more insights to come. So thank you so much, David Lowe, for your time today. It's a great pleasure having you on Afternoon Light. My pleasure, Georgina. Thanks very much. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.